I just fell in love with this idea that education could be like the great equalizer of our country if we dared to do it right. Hi, everyone. This is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, and welcome to No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. I am so excited that you guys are here. Welcome to the very first episode of the podcast. I chose a really good friend to speak with. She is just so amazing. Michelle Odemage. She is the CEO at Achievement Network, or ANET for short. And ANET is a nonprofit dedicated to the idea that every child deserves an excellent education and the opportunities it provides. Michelle joined ANET nearly a decade ago as a coach and has since held roles as Chief of School and System Services and Chief of Staff, among others. Prior to joining ANET, she spearheaded the Think Math team in California and D.C., supporting instructional leaders around math enrichment and intervention programs, as well as supporting new teachers through the New Teacher Project and Teach for America. Michelle and I met in college, so she graduated from Stanford University with a degree in political science. And most importantly, she is a wonderful, compassionate, purpose-driven, and knowledgeable human. I learned so much from this conversation, and I can't wait for you guys to listen. So let's get to it. As you guys just heard, Michelle has done so many amazing things in her life. And so we're excited to learn more about it. So just welcome. Thank you for being here, Michelle. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I was like so excited. One, I just love you. And two, like a good chance to reflect and share my own story and journey. Yeah. Well, we're excited to have you. I love you too. So thank you for doing this and taking time out of your busy schedule. And the first thing that I just want to start with is really just chat about your childhood I'd love to learn about like how you grew up, how you would describe yourself, how was young Michelle, some of the attributes and qualities, and just dig into that a little bit to see how that informs who you are today. It's so funny because, well, one, as you can tell by my last name, I'm Nigerian. So I grew up with my parents who immigrated here from Nigeria. And I think one at another time, I should do a whole story about my parents and how they got to America, because it's like a fascinating story that I didn't learn until I was like in my mid 30s. But my mom is dyslexic. And that's important for me to name on the front end, because so much about her as a reader and as a learner, like left this impression on me as a child and eventually as an adult in the career that I ended up taking on. So when you have parents who are immigrants and one of them has a learning difference, if education is already paramount to most immigrants in this country, it was like 20 times more important in my life and universe. Like how important it was for me to be a reader and an early reader. And I think what that translated to me for me in a lot of positive, but sometimes unhealthy ways is when I was growing up, I struggled a lot with perfectionism. Like I probably pulled my first all-nighter in first grade. That's crazy, right? Like, that's insane. But it was, I actually distinctly remember the assignment. I was coloring a scarecrow and my teacher never put my artwork up. You know, when teachers like celebrate students who do, she never put my artwork up and I was becoming obsessive about like, this is a place I'm not good enough. It also manifested, I had like a full breakdown in first grade 
we were reading a book on dinosaurs. And there was this other kid who was also like an early advanced reader. And you know, when you're in first grade, you follow along as the person's reading and you use your finger to like trace the words. And so she had called on the other student to read. And she said this, she had hyped up the paragraph. She was like, this is going to be a really challenging paragraph. So I'm going to ask, insert other student's name to read it, right? And I was like, well, I could probably read this too. So I'm following along with my finger and we get to the word pterodactyl. If you don't know, the pterodactyl word starts with the letter P. It has a silent P. Now me, I had completed all of Hooked on Phonics. I had done all the reading. I had never seen a silent P before. And I start crying at my desk. The teacher's like, I don't know what's going on. I get home and I literally yell at my father. I'm like, you did not prepare me. You never told me a P could be silent. What if she had called on me on this very important paragraph and I wouldn't have been prepared? And so like me as a child was intense, right? I had like a lot of these, like I needed to be really good. And I felt a lot of pressure around that. And I toned it down a little, I try, a lot. I probably toned it down a lot, but I think, yeah, that was kind of my childhood identity it was very much described that way. Or, and people oftentimes would say when I was in kindergarten, you're going to be a lawyer one day, which I don't think is a compliment to a kindergartner, you know, <laughs> no, I, like looking back, no offense, yeah. Ashley. <laughs> Thank you. Right, right, right. None taken. Okay. First of all, yeah. I love that story. And that really makes me feel seen mm-hmm. because I have a very similar story and I was crying, not an all nighter, but I remember staying up till maybe two in the morning yeah. trying to do a hundred math problems in the second grade and like being very frustrated and crying a lot related to my academics. I remember yeah. that. And there were two reading groups or there were four reading groups when I was in the second grade. And I could tell what the rank was. Yeah. I was only in the second highest. I was in the blue. I was not in the red. And I told my mom, I'm going to be in the blue group by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And I got into the blue group. <laughs> and I I would cry when I would color outside the line. So like, yep. I don't, and I don't know where this came from. My parents were yeah. supportive. Education yep. was important. But like, maybe were we just born intense? Yeah, I think I was because my parents said that it mattered, but then I took that it mattering and like morphed it into this unhealthy complex with myself from the beginning, right? Like my memories of pre-K, kindergarten, first grade are like filled with this intensity, but my parents aren't. They, they care a lot about school, but they aren't in general intense people. You know what I mean? And even my sisters, it didn't manifest itself. They all care about school. They did well academically, but not, no one turned out like how I did about it. So I think there's something, you know, I believe it's partly like a little bit of my astrology. I'm a Libra Virgo cusp. (laughs) That's like literally my birth week is called the week of the perfectionist, which I was like, yeah, that feels very on brand because I've always cared. So I don't know, but, but it's so fascinating. I look back on it now. And I think sometimes like if, if I have a child that shows up that way academically, what do I do? Do I allow it to play itself out? Do I like force them to relax a little bit more, you know? Yeah, no, that's a great thought. I think about that too. I definitely am going to force them to relax a bit. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I, I think. I don't know yeah. if it's worth it. I think it's good yeah. to be driven and to work hard. Mm-hmm. It's very important. So they'll certainly have those qualities, but it's not the end of the world. Yeah. And everything has its limits. Yes. Uh, I love that. So yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about after your childhood? Let's talk about like, how did you get to where you are today? So Mm. maybe what was 
Should we go to high school? Should we go to college? What do you think were some of the more pivotal moments? There's so many. So let's, I'll do a couple of key pivots, a couple of key like highlight parts of my highlight reel, I guess I would say. So in high school, I did a lot of stuff. I did like, I was dancer, did like some soccer, really cared a lot about, I was like captain of my dance team, cared a lot about like leadership. I also cared a lot. It always mattered to me. I grew up in a small, not a small town, but I grew up in a very suburban Texas town. And there was so much positive to that community, right? There was so much I gained. I was always in like advanced classes and always had a lot of like love and care for my teachers. But I also spent most of my middle school and high school career going to schools that were 40 or 60% black, but being the only black student in my classes because of the advanced courses. So much so in my middle school, we had a rule where you couldn't go into the hallway of other like tracks. And so there was like the gifted group, but you couldn't go in the hallway of like the kids that were called regular. (laughs) And what that meant for me as like a young girl trying to figure myself out is like, if I was dating somebody, they were in like a different hallway. We weren't allowed to see each other. Like it just, it played a lot to like how I thought of myself and like what felt important to me. And I remember feeling like really, I felt very early on that I had to prove that I was worthy of the spaces I was in. Because also growing up in a Texas town also meant that I heard a lot of like microaggressions, direct aggressions, students saying things like, oh, well, Michelle, you know, affirmative action. And affirmative action, first of all, doesn't exist in high school, but continually because of my racial identity, feeling invalidated in spaces and feeling like erased or invisibilized, So that was like, was really formative for how I thought about where I wanted to go to school. And so I went to college at Stanford and, you know, I picked Stanford because my mom owned a huge salon in Dallas and we had Black Enterprise Magazine and Black Enterprise Magazine used to do a ranking of school, the best schools for Black students that weren't HBCUs. And Stanford had gotten number one, like every year since I started checking. And I was like, I'm going to go there. And when I had gotten like the pamphlets, you know, when you start after you take your PSAT, school starts sending you pamphlets. I literally did a ratio of like, and I'm not even joking, black men in the pamphlet compared to everyone else. And like Stanford had the highest. So I was like, okay, this is where I'm going to go. I decided in eighth grade, I will go to Stanford because this is like my best bet to have like a vibrant, rich black experience. And I was right. It was great. And when I, is that Wait, I want to stop you really okay. quickly because yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah, one. I'm like giving you the full truth. A lot of people don't know this. I'm like, this is my big expose. Just kidding. My friends in high school all knew I had a whole like chart system about why. Of course, that's so great. I love that you just, yeah, so much thought went into this. Why black men? Were you also thinking about a husband? <laughs> yeah, girl. Oh, I mean, okay. well, let me be clear. Like, what else? I was like, what about black women? You know, I do think when you're when you're that that age, particularly in middle school for me, it was just very hard. Like, I think when you're in middle school, I never struggled to feel like even no matter what other people felt, I was still kicking their butt on assessments and tests. So like I felt fine there. But like when you're spending all of your academic or social experience around people who don't look like you, who don't think you're beautiful, who don't celebrate your identity, who don't understand your hair changes every five seconds. And that's just part of your magic. It like messes with your psyche. And I was just like aware that it was unhealthy for me to be spending all of my time with people 
who didn't see me fully, even when it was like on the personal side, right? Like, I think I don't want to try to convince like Chad and Billy to think I'm interested. Why don't I just go find people who do already? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's certainly a lot of what you're saying I can really identify with. So I love that you were so thoughtful about it. Well, but it's, I mean, it was, I, I was, it wasn't just thought it was like spreadsheets and PowerPoints prepared to present to my parents because to my parents, we have that my parents were like, you said when you were five years old, you wanted to go to Harvard or Yale. Therefore, that's where you're going. And I was like, okay, I'm not five anymore. And so it was also like convincing them of like why I wanted to go to a different place and why I felt like it was going to be a good positive experience for me. Then, you know, college was very interesting. So I was very much into politics growing up. In part, when you hear a lot, your narrative, a narrative around like, you should be a lawyer, you're a great leader, blah, 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 blah. I also had to remember there was like, I remember this guy, Blake, told me when I was 17 years old, I could never be president because I was a woman, let alone black, direct quote, and how much that I was like, I'm going to become president of the United States. And so I went to college with pre-made my schedule before I even started. I knew what classes I would take in poli-sci to be done. And that neurotic behavior was helpful because I finished my poli-sci major at the end of sophomore year. I had no more required courses I needed to take. So then I was suddenly sitting here. I'm like, I want to hang out for two more years. What do I do? And it gave me the chance to like explore other classes, other ideas, other things outside of just politics my junior and senior year. And I fell in love with a class that Prudence Carter, Professor Prudence Carter taught about the sociology of education. And I had been working in like in an education company, like tutoring kids after school. And I just fell in love with this idea that education could be like the great equalizer of our country if we dared to do it right. And so after college, I had a job to go into like uh, Google and work at like one of the big you know, one of the big teams. And I actually decided at the time to defer and do Teach for America, which is a whole, again, another crazy story about me being like, I don't want to join like this white supremacist movement. And then being like, well, if black people don't apply to teach, like how will we ever get black teachers? And then I ended up doing that and it changed my life forever. So now I'm the CEO of an education nonprofit that works in school districts across the country and like sits alongside their school leadership teams to really talk about the reality of the inequities that students experience and face on a day-to-day basis. And what can we do if we dare to, to like do different, right? Like when we're picking the math textbook we're going to buy for the district, what if we really centered on the most marginalized students when we determined which one we wanted to purchase? How could that have a positive impact on students' lives? Yeah, that's kind of like my story, like, or like the high level, like mm-hmm. how little Michelle got to this moment. The funny thing is, if you ever see pictures of me, my head literally is the exact same size from all these faces of life. Oh my gosh, you're hilarious. That's amazing. I would love to know, because you said Teach for America changed mm-hmm. my life. So you were at this point where you were about mm-hmm. to go and work at Google like a lot of Stanford grads do. Yep. And instead you decided to do Teach for America. And you did talk a little bit about like the organization and your feelings there. Mm -hmm. Can you expound upon that and tell us a bit more? Yeah. In college, I've been running this after school teaching program that taught math, right? Anybody who was in college at the same time, I was there, probably heard of it. Literally, we, we employed half of the campus and dominantly we were employing a lot of Black students at Stanford to work in Palo Alto, which is not a Black neighborhood, right? 
And what was really striking, well, one, because I was leading that organization. So it was a lot of like recruiting within my own networks. We were getting a lot of Black and Latino, Latin, Latinx team members. But then the parent reviews were really strong. Like you all are making math so fun. This is so exciting. So we were growing and expanding. At one point, we were like one of the largest student run companies in America. It was really crazy. And so naturally, given that we are training up people on how to teach mathematical concepts, Teacher America reaches out to me to want to host a recruiting event for our people. So I'm getting lunch with the recruiter and I'm like very direct as a person. I just don't like to hold back anything. I like to just say what I think. And I had been really hesitant. You know, one of our team members on the team was also working with Teacher America. I was like, I think this is a really good idea, but I was really resistant because in my mind, I had this like dangerous minds and like, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer coming into the hood with her motorcycle jacket, trying to use rap to teach poetry. And I like, you know, I was just, I was like, this is not freedom writers, right? Like I us to not minimize the experience of, of students and, and seeing their full selves and their identity and their learning experiences. And I just am so grateful to that recruiter because in that moment, she said, I am sitting in front of you asking you to help me bring in more Black and Latinx educators into the space. And you're closing the door to the conversation because we don't have enough Black and Latinx educators in the space. So then what do I do? And I just like love when somebody like basically is like, like put your money where your mouth is. Like if you want this to be true, you're sitting on this Rolodex of 250 teachers, dominantly Black, dominantly Latinx, who've actually learned how to teach and get be effective at it. And you're not even letting me access them to ask them if they're interested in serving their communities. And that was just like a good conviction moment for me because I was like, that's true. If I care about that so much, why don't I pursue it myself? So like, obviously we did a recruiter event. We actually had a lot of team members go and pursue that. And I went myself and applied and ended up teaching math in DC, which I wasn't a math major. I was poli sci. I was like, like I knew how to do math, but I never taken math in college, which first signal of like oppression in the system. <laughs> but it it changed my life because I think the years I taught in DC were radically formative. I failed a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things wrong. And I did some things right. And I learned a lot about myself, about education. And I realized that I never could go back to doing something else. That like solving this complex challenge was what I wanted to make my life's work and like, and and it's complex. And I knew that I was like, there's so many different ways I could tackle it, but I felt like if I pursued determining how to create a more equitable education system, that like, I would never feel like my professional time was wasted. I just, that's amazing. I love that. And I love that you had that really pivotal moment and you were able to really figure out your life's purpose then. So a lot of people tell me, including you, Mm -hmm. um, that Teach Mm -hmm. for America was their most challenging job ever. And I never, like, if you could explain it to someone Mm -hmm. from the outside, how would you describe it? Why was it, why has it been so challenging for the top students in their various Mm -hmm. classes to go off and teach in inner city neighborhoods? Like what, what is a big challenge? There's many. I think I'm going to try my best to distill it down to three that I observed in myself. The first is you cannot 
one, let me name this. It was the most challenging and most rewarding experience. I will always tell you teaching was the best job I've ever had. Nothing has filled my cup like that did. Nothing has. And we in this country do not do right by our teachers. Full stop, period. And I'm not talking just about pay. I'm talking about respect. I'm talking about dignity of the profession. There's just pervasive challenges. But the three things that I think that make it particularly hard and why people who feel very passionate and who are coming from, you know, these top universities are finding themselves all of a sudden confronted with this extreme challenge is one, you cannot just strategize or intellectualize your way through the education problem. There's so much that is like about what makes it complex, right? Like if you're going to become a doctor, like you can study a lot of books, you take a lot of tests, and then you use the ongoing research and your instincts to kind of navigate, but you're building from a, like a huge bank of historical context information, et cetera. That doesn't exist really in teaching. There's like strong practices, but we rarely have found high quality, scalable, bright spots on how to teach students in our country well, particularly those who are already combating multiple degrees of oppression around them. So that's one. You, it's not it's not a head exercise Two, your locus of control is minimal, right? Like it, you really, when you're a teacher, run your classroom. But the decisions that come district, the decision that comes from your principal, the decisions that come from the teacher before you and the teacher after you all impact what you can do each day. And so you have to like own what's in your local control, but your hands are tied in some ways. Right. I had a really not good math textbook for my students which then meant I couldn't buy new textbooks. They're too expensive. There's no way I can personally afford them. So I had to like rewrite so much of the content. So I'm spending my night writing textbooks basically for my students. It's just, that's hard. And I'm ill-equipped, right? I didn't major in math in college. I'm kind of like using my best judgment and Google red flag, red flag, red flag to kind of figure out how to get high quality, rigorous, academically rich content in front of my students that they can access. So that's, and then lastly, it's heart work. Nothing emotionally has pulled at me. I've cried more in teaching. I don't think I cried visibly in front of any person, not even my family until I became a teacher. And then I was crying all the time because you're faced with all the lies you've learned about our country in front of you. It's really hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have shoes and you're looking at students who don't have quality shoes to wear. You're looking at students who are hungry and chronically hungry. Or I taught at an inner city boarding school, which one is a challenging premise to begin with, but two, that sometimes at the end of the year, some parents didn't come pick up their kids. At the end, of, we did actually, our kids went home every weekend. I remember one weekend, one of my kiddos didn't get picked up by their parents and like observing what that feels like and how to reconcile that. And it's really emotionally exhausting. And I would look at the other teachers. I mean, one, if you're not watching Abbott Elementary, I just, I think Abbott Elementary is, and I feel like it's a docuseries. <laughs> I was like, this is exactly what my life felt like. But you look at these other teachers and they were surviving it. And I always kept thinking, how do y'all have your own children? Because the children, these 60 something kids I'm responsible for, my heart bleeds for them every day. Every day, my heart is bleeding. I remember one student said to me, you're the first teacher who said to me that I could become somebody and I want to prove you right. 
And I'm like, you feel pressure, that's pressure, right? Like, I was like, oh my God, I don't want that to be, like, I'm carrying, I didn't realize that by saying that in a positive way, but like, I open up all the baggage you felt the seven other years of your education before you got to me. You know what I mean? So it's hard. It's exhausting. And it's not like, let me just sit down and intellectualize this brief or, you know, work through this management consulting deck. Those things are tiring, they're burnout, et cetera. But I don't think they like rip your heart apart and kind of make you sit face to face with injustice every day, every day. Yeah. That's so powerful. I'm so happy that you did that work. It's so inspiring. I'm glad that you're continuing to do work to at least support that. I know it's a bit different now, um, which I would love to chat about, but really quickly, just two things, because you said you made, you did some really great things and you made a lot of mistakes. Could you tell us about one of those great things and one of those mistakes? We're seeing all of the humanity of this experience. Yeah. Let me start with mistakes because there's a laundry list of them, but let me tell you a couple. And some of them I didn't realize till later, right? I kind of could look back and realize like I wasn't as good as I thought I was, or I don't know how to explain it. But one of the mistakes I made is I used to tell my students all the time that I wanted to have them become these brilliant mathematicians so they could, quote, get out of here. But I didn't realize even as a, and I assumed that like being a black educator would be like necessary and sufficient to helping, you know, the challenge, right? I just deeply believe that students should see teachers who looked like them and came from similar backgrounds. But when I was saying that to my students, that like, I'm going to teach you so you can get out. I was like actively invalidating the love and community and experience that they were surrounded with. And the reality was I lived in the same community my students did. So I lived right outside the school. That was one of the best places I've ever lived. Like I knew all my neighbors' names. We all connected, but like this get out narrative was just so damaging. And I don't think that's like a small failure of like, I wanted to empower students, but empowering them to choose what they want in their life doesn't mean I need to be dismissive, erase, and undermine where they come from. I actually needed to like celebrate it more. And I tried to, I did a lot of like black female things, black male things. I did a lot of like, I'm black and I'm proud work, but I didn't do enough of like, and where you come from is good enough. And like the success of education isn't fleeing here or getting or running away from here. Sometimes that success in in your life is staying here and like building and fostering and harnessing the beauty. And so that's like, that was like an emotional, I feel like a lot of guilt from that because I even remember my first few years when my first couple of kids started graduating college and I would see some of them like go back home. I would notice in my subconscious, like, no, go do something else. But I'm like, that's and that too is good. Right. So that's like one psychological failing that I, I, I process later in life, but there were many days Can where I, I was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. No, that, cause that's amazing. That's, I just want listeners to sit with that because I think that is important. And I think that we change, like, I, I think it's something we all internalized. Like mm-hmm. if you grow up in a certain neighborhood, go to this mm-hmm. to this school, get this kind of job, make this kind of money, create a life there, wherever that mm-hmm. may be. And it's usually not a black community. It's never. If everyone gets equipped with the right education to create, go back to their actual communities that they grew up in to make that place better, that yep. is amazing. And yep. it's something I completely, I see that too, just from an immigrant perspective 
just in Guyana, like everybody leaves Guyana. When I go, when I went back there, it's just filled with unfortunately so much crime because we all come to the States, we go to these schools and they want Mm -hmm. us to have a better life, which is amazing. But it would Mm -hmm. be interesting to see if we can change this narrative about leaving and perhaps creating communities where people stay and creating safer communities and happier. And and how it connects to like, white supremacy, right? Because if leaving is to go into communities where you are going to be the chocolate chip in the cookie, it sends that that is the goal for attainment, right? That success that you know you've made it if you're in the white picket fence in that suburb of Connecticut outside of Manhattan, like, you know what I mean? Like you've kind of create this like narrative that that's what success is. And it's, it erases it one, it like perpetuates assimilation, but it also erases honoring the beauty of who you are. And I just, and it's so funny because my parents, I always knew I wanted to get out of my home, but my parents' big goal for me was to go back to Nigeria. Like that was my dad was like, when I was really big into politics, he was like, I want you to become America's ambassador for Nigeria and you go home to Nigeria. And so I'm like, well, where did I learn that from? Because my parents were very much like, you learn to go back and contribute. And like, but I had somehow in American society had kind of just got wrapped up in this escapism orientation. It's unhealthy. It's really unhealthy because I think I I had to first reconcile with the own way it was present in my life and the consequences it created in my life about how I viewed myself, what I valued, what I didn't, before I could realize the ways in which I had inadvertently perpetuated it. No, that's that's so powerful. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. Can you share a high of the experience or one of the, one of the things that you think that you did well? So you, you remember I said, I didn't have a really good textbook. So I had my kiddos, I love them so much, but I had them make what it's called an interactive notebook, but essentially we've kind of built our own textbook through the school year. So I would teach them a concept and they would write down, like, here's how you do it. And we'd make it really fun, with like foldables and color pencils and stuff that explain it. And they're kind of writing their own explanation And then on the other side of the paper, they would kind of go through and do practice problems all day. But we they they were responsible for building this over the course of the year. It had like a table of contents, like here's how we do two-step equations, here's how you do systems of equations. And like they had built these spirals, some of them had multiple spirals that explain all these ideas. And one of my favorite moments was talking to one of my kiddos after graduation. She said, You know, I kept that with me all the way through. She goes, because sometimes she said I found it to be like the best guide. She's like, sometimes I'd be in like an algebra three or a pre-calc class and something was like not making sense. And I was like, wait, this is similar to how we learned it in seventh or eighth grade. I don't, I think I had her in eighth grade. And so she said, I would just go back to that. And she said, what I loved, it was like written in my handwriting, writing in my words. And, and I, I love that because I empowered them with ownership of like, they could write their own story and explain the concepts to their future selves. And so hearing that from one of my students was great. And then I would say the other biggest high, I was at this huge education conference this summer, the the biggest ed conference in the world. And I am looking at who's on the attendee list and I see one of my old students. And then I run into her, we meet up and she's like an education lobbyist now working at like an ed lobbying firm. She had spent part of her life living in Barcelona and doing all this stuff, but she had just... She was always so brilliant. And I just loved seeing how she just like was living up to her full potential in life and deciding to contribute back to the education space. And she said, education is what I know. It's the one thing I've lived my whole life. And so it's where she wanted to contribute her skills and gifts. And that just to me was like, 
life made. I love that. That is just that feeling when you see someone that you poured into succeed is mm-hmm. unlike any other feeling. And the fact that you were yeah. able to do that for so many students, I know this is just one example, but I know so many students were touched by you. And I know I'm not even your student, but <laughs> including myself, and I, I don't think mm-hmm. I mentioned this, but Michelle is, I said mentor, but she actually was or is my big sibling. And what mm-hmm. that means is when we, when I first started at Stanford as a freshman, the black community, they all assign siblings to you. And so when I first got to school, she, Michelle was my first introduction to Stanford. And so I was like, this is going to be a great place. <laughs> so hey, girl, hey. Yeah. It's like so high energy, so kind, so welcoming and so helpful, like really guiding me through so much of my life. So I'm not surprised that you're doing this work now because mm-hmm. you were doing that in college, probably before that as well. So those are some really good highlights. I wanted to move, unless you have anything else about that experience that you wanted to share. Okay. I wanted to move to how you became your CEO of your company now. What did that journey look like? I mean, you're a very young CEO. Yeah. I tell this to people. I don't think anybody believes me, but I never wanted to be a CEO. And now that's hard to believe because I wanted to be president. Those are not the same job. Let me be clear. Like watching the West Wing versus watching like suits. It's just not the same. It's not the same energy or life. And so I'm actually surprised. It's like when I was thinking about this conversation today, I was like, I have no idea how I got here, to be very honest. I think it's a little bit of luck, a lot of passion and some sprinkle of hard work, but so I started at my company nine and a half years ago as a education coach. So basically it's like a consultant, but you have like a portfolio of 12 to 14 schools. And I was working alongside principals in DC, helping them work through their student data and information, like what were they going to do? How are they going to respond to it, et cetera. And I did that for a while. And I, I liked that career, you know, coming from teaching and I had done some other things in between, but coming out of teaching when I, part of the reason I wanted to leave teaching was one, my heart felt like it was bleeding, but I felt like a part of my brain wasn't being able to be accessed. And it was the part of my brain that can be more quant, can be more strategy. Like it's, you do it in teaching, but it's just different. And so I got found myself in this role. And I think to this day, I'm probably like the youngest coach they ever hired was very young when I came into this role. Most people, the profile is former principals and I had never been a former principal. I had led and managed people. I had done a lot to develop educators in math, but I had not led a building myself. So one, I enter my job in imposter syndrome off top, right? Because everybody else has this background and profile. And, you know, after doing that for a, a small handful of years, I had an executive director who managed me, a Black woman. This was the first time in my career I had had a Black manager, and which was such a blessing. Um, she's still a blessing in my life. But she had said to me, one day I'm going to work for you. And I was like, girl, what are you talking about? And she's like, you need to like push yourself because you could do more. And so I thought she was telling me to just work harder. So I was like, okay, like sweating, working harder. I'm like, okay, she wants me to really push myself. And then I get a phone call from our then COO who says, you know, there's a chief of staff job posting that's coming and I want you to apply to it. And I'm like, okay. And she said, I've talked to my manager, Maia. She's like, Maia's talked to you about you pretty extensively. And at the same time, I'm also getting phone calls 
from other teams within our company who need executive directors. And like my has talked a lot about you. We think like you might be a good executive director. So one, the power of a good mentor who's speaking your name into spaces, because I was now all of a sudden, I had been talking to my about like, maybe I should go to business school. Maybe I like, I need to go get something else to be good enough. And she had been saying to me, you are good enough. I need you to like push yourself. And I thought she wanted me to work harder, but what I didn't realize is she wanted me to push myself through one of the doors that she had been working to open for me. And so now suddenly I'm sitting with three or four doors that I could apply to. And each person is saying, I've heard how great you are, which is so like, they haven't seen my work. They just had heard it from her. And so I particularly looked at the chief of staff job description and I was not qualified. It said you needed MBA or master's. And I dropped out of my master's program. I started my master's in secondary math, but I was like, I got to teach kids. I don't want to be talking about theoretically teaching kids. So I never finished my master's. And so I'm like, okay, well, I didn't finish my master's program because I focused on teaching. It says you need an MBA. It says you need to like have 10 to 12 years of education experience. Girl, I'm barely 10 to 12 years old. Not really. But like in my mind, I just didn't meet any of those criteria. And so I said, I called the CEO back and was like, thanks for flagging it. It seems so interesting, but I'm not qualified. So I'm not going to apply. She said, if I call you to tell you to apply to something, you should apply to it, which was also a good like directive feedback moment from our female COO who knew like the female consciousness. So I applied to the job and it was a really tricky, not hard in terms of like exasperating, but like emotionally hard for me interview process. I just felt like I just felt very insecure, the whole process. I had been in a Bible study at the time that focused on David and Goliath. And the Bible said was really great, reframed that Goliath doesn't necessarily need to be another person, but sometimes it's the things you feel like in life that are so much bigger than you that you can't achieve, you don't deserve, you can't conquer. So like God has placed that learning series, like a six-week deep Bible study that I'm doing at the same time that I'm going through this interview process. And I end up getting the job which is crazy. And so then I actually look was chief of God. staff. Sorry, yeah, I just had yeah. to say that. Look, I won't, he do it. Won't, <laughs> won't he do it? I just, I, I'm a big faith believer person because I just feel like every time he is like pre-prepared a way for me and I get, I become chief of staff and then chief of staff of a senior leadership team that almost all of them had went to HBS, almost all of them. And I remember us being at a retreat one year and I say, Sorry, just really quickly for Mm -hmm. listeners, HBS is Harvard Business School. Yeah, Harvard Business (laughs) School. So often considered one of the top, if not the top business school in the country, extremely competitive, hard to get into. And they had all gone. And I'm sitting now as like the chief of staff for this crew. And I remember being at a retreat and saying to them, I'm probably going to chief of staff for a couple of years and then go to business school. And one of them said, we will give you business school. We'll do it for you. We'll teach it to you. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, sure, whatever. So, you know, fade in, fade out. I'm like now chief of staffing, two years has passed and I'm still doing it. I'm still going. I don't feel like I'm slowing down. My scope of work is getting more complex. The organization is growing, expanding. I'm taking on, I have a bigger and bigger team underneath me. And I'm now like leading all of our strategic initiatives and all of our special projects. And I've kind of moved from chief of staff to like, my title chief of staff the whole time, but the size of team and work, it's now chief of staff and VP of strategic initiatives, chief of staff and chief of strategy stuff. It's stuff, lots of things going on. I remember pulling up one moment and looking at the senior team and saying to them, guys, I never went to business school. 
And y'all never taught me. I go, y'all, we never sat down and did a class. And one of them goes, I go, I don't even know what I really learned here. <laughs> and they said, aha, we just saved you $150,000 a year though. But like, you've learned everything, right? Like you've been living case studies. You haven't, we didn't need to sit down and give you lessons, which was very true. And then I've been chief of staff in five and a half. I was getting about to be at six years. And part of that also meant managing all crises. And the biggest crisis that had come was the pandemic, the pandemic hit. And I'm naturally a little like, I don't want to say I'm a hypochondriac, but I do like doom and gloom a little bit sometimes about like scenario planning. And probably in February, I remember I traveled a lot for work. I started wearing masks all the time and people thought I was a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And I was like, no, I'm watching what's happening internationally. This pandemic's going to be bad. And all of a sudden we're sitting and I start closing down offices because I'm in charge of crisis response for the company. And I start closing offices and telling people not to go in. And they're like arguing with me in early March. And then the whole world shuts down after the NBA mid-March. And our company had a really critical moment. Education was in chaos. Straight chaos was happening. And our team members are in schools. And at that moment, our CEO led a decision that was really smart financially for the organization to that we needed to like restructure under the previous administration states had a lot of power but that meant that they were all making crazy different decisions which meant our ohio team was having one challenge another team so anyways we restructured the organization in the middle of the pandemic craziness the emotional exhaustion from everyone was really high and so at the part way through our ceo steps down says that she you know she's reached the end of her 9 year time. And I had never imagined that I would work not with the CEO being there. Like I just assumed like I out her tenure and then I would leave. I had actually been debating leaving before the pandemic hit. Like she, my company knows this, but she and I had been talking like, I was like, I'm kind of getting tired. Maybe this is my last year. Now I feel my responsibility is kicking in. The pandemic's happened. My CEO decides she's leaving. And I did not plan to apply for the CEO job. I actually was not interested. I had reached out to other people. I was like, you should come be the CEO. You should come be the CEO. And it was actually one of my work good friends called my sisters. My sisters are my best friends. I talk to them every day. My work best friend called my sisters because she hadn't, she knows them and said, do you know that the CEO left and there's going to be a CEO vacancy? And Michelle is saying she's not going to apply. And all of a sudden I'm on an emergency family FaceTime and my sisters are cussing me out. Like, whoa, you care so much about this company and like, you're just not even considering it. And I was like, I'm not, again, I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm like, I don't know how to be a CEO. I got a fake business degree. From, from these Wait, so can I stop you really quickly? Yeah. So yeah. Why did you feel like you weren't qualified at this point? Because it seems like over the years, even though you entered the job with some imposter syndrome, Mm-hmm. It seems like from all the evidence, the way you've been able to climb without the business degree, the way you've been able to enter certain rooms without specific experience, mm-hmm. you weren't a mm-hmm. principal, you've named a number of them, you've succeeded. So I guess I'm surprised at this point why you still had that feeling. Do you know where that comes from? Well, I, I may have succeeded, but there had been times where professionally, I think I am more susceptible than I than I like to come off to like other people's opinions. I don't really, my self-worth is not, I'm like very disconnected from like how I feel about me doesn't really connect. 
to what other people think, but I'm aware when people have concerns. So there was one point when I had gotten promoted to a VP level where I know because I was chief of staff, other VPs had called the CEO to say it wasn't fair that I had gotten this big project and that they should have been able to get it. They were more veteran. Many of them had more business degrees. They had been leaders. And so in my mind, other people, even if my boss was very confident in me, maybe then some of my peers internally weren't, right? Like, why would they feel this way or engage in that way? Or, you know, I remember when I when I one time had to like launch this special project and build a team, but we wanted to pull people from other teams to be part of the team. And I was met with like a lot of like, why do you get to take our people, right? And so I just kind of had this like, maybe, maybe other people aren't confident in me. And when you're chief of staff, you know what the CEO goes through. And I was like, why would I want to do that to myself? <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like, why would I have done this hard job? Part of it was also like, I'm not interested. So yeah, I think that's where it came from. I think when I think about why I hesitated, I also, I went from chief of staff to being a VP to now being equals. And then to say, now I'm going to manage the chiefs that sit around me when some of them had been my mentors, right? Like that's a lot. Yeah. And I, I think... I think I'd be more concerned if I wasn't extremely hesitant. I actually, even throughout the interview process, I was I was pretty convinced that I was going through the process just to try it out, but I would probably say no at the end. Like I thought, if I don't really want this job, I will go through the motions of it because it's a good learning experience. And what made you say yes? What made me say yes is I love my organization. I love the 220 people, 250 some, I don't know what we're at right now, people that I'm like responsible for. I care about them deeply as humans and I deeply believe in what we can accomplish together. And I feel so many times that we're on the precipice of greatness. And I thought if the option is between a person who knows, loves, and committed and wants to like move that forward or somebody newer coming in who maybe like they're going to spend all this time trying to understand it. And then like, you know, that I wanted to make sure that the next chapter, like that we finished some of the stories we had been writing and not started, not trying to start a new book. You know what I mean? And so I thought I can, I can help us finish some stories. And mainly, mainly that I like believed in the brilliance that already existed in the organization. So I was like, I don't need to be a leader. That's like, changing a lot right now. I need to be one who's harnessing and unleashing a lot. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that the way that you put that. And I'm sure the FaceTime helped with your sisters. That's an amazing story, by the way. I know it cut you off a bit on that. No, it was, I don't know if it helped. It was like abusive. They were like legitimately cussed me out. And they're like, you're ridiculous. I don't have time. One of them was in between me. And she's like, I have to go to a freaking meeting. I cannot believe you're hiding all these secrets from us. And I was like, yeah, but I wouldn't have applied. I would not have applied at all if that phone call never happened. Look at the importance of community and family. Yeah. That and people see you. Because if my work coworker didn't see me and happened to have my sister's phone numbers because she had met them, like I'd be, we'd be having a different conversation today. I'd be talking about one of the mistakes I did was not applying to be CEO. Well, I think this is a really amazing story and a great stopping point. I knew that this might become a part one, part two. And that is exactly what has happened. Oh, we, man, I'm long-winded. I'm sorry, Ashley. I'm sorry. No, it's all gems. Like, I am not editing any of this out because I think the world needs to hear your story and your perspective is because it's so valuable. 